My name is Dr. Joe McVeigh. I am chair of the Partners Working Group for the XR for Rehab Collaboration and Innovation Network. Part of our mission at XR for Rehab is to build a network of researchers, technologists, SMEs and innovators that will revolutionise rehabilitation through the use of technology. If you would like to be part of this revolution, please follow the link on our website and join the XR for Rehab Collaboration and Innovation Network. I'm delighted to welcome you to this podcast series, which will introduce you to some of the thought leaders, researchers and innovators in XR for Rehab. I hope you'll enjoy the conversations and discussions. Well, hello, everybody. This is Remco Hogendijk, uh, president of the XR for Rehab Association. And we have our podcast series with very interesting people from all over the world who have opinions and visions on extended reality into rehabilitation therapy. And today we have someone from the United States of America, all the way from Seattle. It's uh, uh, Ryan Douglas. Ryan, welcome. Thank you. Maybe for our audience, can you introduce yourself and uh, tell me a little bit what what you've done and what uh, how your career has looked like? Sure. Uh, well, f- for the last 20 years, I mean, my background is AI and robotics. And for the last 20 years, there's been a uh, primary focus with the development of therapeutics. And so designing therapies and uh, putting medical devices out into the world. I was fortunate to be part of a team that we assembled uh, in a company called Nextturn, and we commercialized over 20 medical devices in 20 years. They were AI-driven, robotics-driven, a lot of home-based healthcare products. Um, So we did treatments for cystic fibrosis, lymphedema treatment. Um, We did work for ablation therapies and various sorts of surgical robotics as well, as well as uh, interventional uh, catheters, leads, uh, and worked on neurostim. Uh, for pain, peripheral nerve neural stim, and um, also vagal nerve stimulation, those sorts of things. Okay, so uh, would it be fair to say you were kind of a hardcore med tech guy? Yeah, that was. My, I mean, med tech and medical device was was my world, and then I uh, had an opportunity to sell that company. We had an opportunity to sell it um, in 2019, 2020, and I was headed to retirement. Uh, when I, um, I met a gentleman, his name is Mike Wilson, and he was in a very similar situation. He was uh, selling his company. He was actually going public. Um, very similar age, very similar thing. He'd spent about 20 years developing that company. And like me, while it was being sold, he had uh, had to remove himself from it for a period of time. And uh, we both moved to Vancouver Island in Canada. And um, but he had been, uh, you know, was going through this similar thing, but he had been building video games for 20 years and ended up building the largest video game publisher uh, in the world, a, a company called Devolver. And so we started to compare notes. And mm-hmm. But before we, we uh, let's, let's uh, step back one, one second. So you're about in your, in your forties, end of your forties, then you have the opportunity to sell your company. Yes. And then you're thinking of retiring for me as a European, this is a, a a very strange concept in oh. retiring in your 40s yes so that's your way too young to retire it well it, i mean i was uh, it was a very intensive you know career up to that point um it was a very lucky and favorable exit uh, money wasn't going to be an issue anymore um i was quite tired i thought and i, I also was quite disenchanted with with the medical device world and mm-hmm. and this idea because though we had built so many things our distribution partners, uh, which were some of the best known brands in the world for 
for um, for medical devices had sold a lot of them. But I was still really wondering. I had evidence to suggest that though we were good at getting these things built and put out into the world, um, the compliance or the compelling nature of them, I, I was I was pretty stuck on wondering, were they really getting used? And you know, we could work so hard at, at our end. We would work at making something very very accessible. We would drive the cost down. And we would typically see a device come in or a concept come in with the idea that it was going to cost thousands. If a medical device costs thousands, by the time it gets through the U.S. system, it costs the payer or the person tens of thousands. And, and so we would work hard to take that down into low hundreds and redevelop sensors, re, reutilize technology, and, and think about smart solutions. This is what got us mm -hmm. super excited as people that build robots and technologists. We were, how could we make healthcare really, really accessible? And part of what was getting a little demoralizing for us was even if we took that thousand dollar device down to a hundred dollars the end price was high and we were still wondering if we were really compelling folks when we looked at the culture of how you get a medical device cleared through the fda you do usability studies and clinical studies but the method by which you recruit and bring people into these studies especially for home-based healthcare, you know when we bring you into the study we say you you know you can come into my study, you're very, very lucky, but you're gonna to have to behave because if you don't comply, this whole study could be ruined. And even then, 30% of people drop out. But we observe them and we lead them through this study in its entirety. And our usability and our human factors is, is much more about safety and, and efficacy of the therapy, but it seemed to miss this really key mm -hmm. component. Will you do it? Do okay. you wanna do it? And I think it became really evident to us that we know how to solve many, many, many medical problems, except people won't do it. And so the question I started asking myself is, have we solved any problem if no one's compelled to do it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, the, the thing is, in, in uh, talking about innovations, you had this, this, this uh, three uh, zones there where you talked about is it compliant, is it accessible, and so on. Um, uh, our CEO, Professor Van Houthoven, once said an innovation can only be meaningful if it's affordable, available, and is, is, if it's contributing to realizing uh, uh, people's personal goals. If that's uh, if that makes sense to you, yes. um, so um, maybe that's what you mean by saying, okay, will they actually use it? There should be a personal motivation or a personal drive or a personal gain uh, in this innovation to do it. Yeah, I mean, so the thing that made Next Turn interesting and really successful is we commercialized a lot of devices quite quickly, and, and folks, and we got a lot of opportunities to choose what to do, and they wondered how we chose. How did we decide what we were going to do? And we looked at this Venn diagram, this overlap between something that had accessibility. That meant not just that you could find it, but you could use it, that it made good sense to you. Cost, was it, a, you know, is it going For to sure. fit in the current yeah. structure? Um, if it was going to be, if it had to be reimbursed, was it reimbursable now or at what time in the future? And then would people comply? And even the use of the word comply in that Venn diagram meant we didn't understand. Comply to me listen to me, do what I want, versus compel, right? Or even further than that, what about something that you can't help but do? So intrinsically motivational that we land at this place that we have to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and to do that, and you know, that 
does not come from a place of guilting or even people say, you know, you measure what matters. Measure what matters means that we're still going to hold you accountable for the idea that you now have the data. You've got to do it. Mm-hmm. But most of us don't. Yeah. Are we bad? Are we out of control? Are we the wrong kind of human being if we eat the or wrong are we, food? Or are we only human? Are we, we are no robots. Huh? Yeah, yeah. What I'm going to tell you is everybody you meet who's in fine physical condition or runs marathons and all that, they sit somewhere on the bell curve. Mm-hmm. You know, They're on the edges of this bell curve. They're not in the normative middle. Nope. And if they had to have your neurological function, if they had your brain, they wouldn't be jacked and pumped up like that and run in 27.6. <laughs> if they had to work as hard as you had to do it, uh-huh. they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. All right. Right? And so we started to really think about, and that was part of me pulling back going, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't uh-huh. know how to get somebody to want to, yeah. to become intrinsically motivated to do things uh-huh. they otherwise don't want to do. Okay, so there you are. You're in Vancouver Island. You sold your your businesses. You're a multi-billion-dollar uh, individual in the Fortune 500. I don't know. You're sitting on that island, and uh, Vancouver Island, beautiful island. I've I've been a few times. It's 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 gorgeous. But then you meet in a tennis court another guy. That's right. So while the transaction was going on, it was a very nerve-wracking sort of transaction. It was six months of. I mean, it was COVID on top of it. So I couldn't travel there even though I wanted to. And I really needed to be in the, in this blackout period. I needed to be away from the company. Well, it sorted out how it was going to be without me. And, you know, but I'm, I'm in my 40s and I'm bored and I'm anxious and nervous. And so what I want to do is things with friends. And I was reaching out and my friends uh, from Canada where I'm born, I mean, they're just average people. They have jobs and I was driving them freaking crazy. I'm like, middle of the afternoon, let's go for a hike. Let's do this. Finally, they're like, you've got to meet this other guy who turns out to be going through the exact same thing at the exact same time. So he has time in the middle of the day. And we decide that our common thing that we like to do, um, we like to go for walks and talk. We like to play tennis. So we started playing a lot of tennis and going for walks and spending time. And he was in this, it's a very remarkable thing if you ever get a chance to build like some of the things you've built. And then you transition this thing, this idea of being pulled away from it or out of it. It's a very sort of existential experience. It's a time to reflect. And I was reflecting a lot on this idea. Had I brought value? Um, so was Mike. So Mike had built, you know, the largest independent gaming company in the world, publisher in the world. And he had all sorts of things to think about. Everything from the idea of had he induced harm. There was a lot of ideas. It's 2019 or so. There starts being the introduction from World Health that potentially games are actually disease Um, forming not just a symptom of disease, but a disease themselves. This is something that has since been shown to be not particularly accurate. But at the same time, also COVID is hitting and we're getting a lot of data and an Oxford study is coming out, meta study is starting to show that games can be quite compelling. So we're on the two sides of this situation. And Mike is really, as we're playing tennis, he keeps pushing. He's, he shows up with an idea or maybe we could make these a medical you know, device and It's funny because sitting at your conference today, I wish I could have brought him to that conference that day because he's like, well, we should do this. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think you know who we're talking to. I don't think <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what this is going to look like. Yeah. Um, but yes, he, he and he just, the studies and the data kept coming and the world kept getting sadder at the same time. I mean, we've been in a mental health emergency for over 60 years. One of the devices I'm most proud of that we built was quite simple. It was a light therapy device. We made it heavily accessible. We partnered with all the major retailers in the world to get access to it 
on the greatest level. So I understand the mental health crisis. I know it's been here for 60 years. Um, I know that it's been getting progressively worse, worse for the last 10. There's a lot of theories. I think social media is something that we're really looking at, political unrest, and just the general idea that we land in this place where we're, uh, the spotlight is on how inadequate each of us is, and a whole system is built to do that. I also think uh, gamification has been an additive to that. When we put a Fitbit on everybody's arm and yeah, these devices, see. <laughs> I see these, these are a time bomb just waiting to tell you either in one day or in three years that you're terrible. That you hadn't yeah, taken yeah, all the steps so you have so data data yeah. data without motivation so all this is happening in the world and we start comparing notes and the thing that i notice uh, i didn't understand how big the video game industry had got he started to explain it to me it is the biggest entertainment um and medium in the world it's bigger than movies live performances um and uh music combined not to mention theater and all of it. Put it all together and you don't get video games. There's 3 billion active folks on gaming platforms and they're not who you think they are. Their average age is 40. They skew 53% female. I mean, it's it's not where it came from. It's in a, in a very different place. And so I was pretty blown away by all of these folks and they want to do it. Matter of fact, some of them can't stop doing it. So that compelling, intrinsic, Mm-hmm. Um, motivation thing really caught my attention. Okay, well we've we've uh, we've known the concept of games for health for uh, quite some time, um, but in games for health uh, somehow we always uh, approach it from the point of view from the therapist. So the therapist say, okay, I want to put gamification into my therapy, and we we start from there. But you are against that approach or you you've uh, maybe no you're not against maybe but you say well we, I'm very we, much for uh, the we, we do a, a different approach can you tell me about how we, uh, i think this is the same thing i was overcoming early on when we were making medical devices and what it is is a level of academic arrogance when you bring someone into the room that is so well studied and, and acknowledged as a phd even around engineers um they were often early deferential to them what is the what is the primary um, inventor of the concept belief? And honestly, this is the worst way to make a medical device. And that's why over time I converted myself to to being a therapy designer. A therapy designer is someone who can listen to and understand the therapeutic uh, benefit that you're trying to reach and the techniques that you've used, and then starts to think about the technology, the environment that we need to deliver it, and. This became, I mean, even more important here. Quietly over the last 40 to 50 years, the, medic, uh, the medical device industry has kind of stayed fairly static relative to many other technology-driven industries. And in that period of time, video games went from very small industry and very small following to 3 billion people utilizing them. And this very big industry dropped up. And these folks became very, very good, sometimes too good at compelling people to do things. And I think that we didn't look at them for what they really are, which is behavioral scientists. And the academic arrogance and that uh, walks in the room and says, listen, this is exactly what you have to do. Here's this thing, <laughs> gamify it. <laughs> Without ever slowing down and stopping and studying and thinking about, well, what about this entire other process of building a game? Mm-hmm. Game designers do not gamify their games. No. 
they start with this kernel of play and they work all the way through a very difficult and intricate process and they land at a place of designing something that is compelling yeah and that if you bring them into a room and say here's all the constructs this is what i want now just gamify it they don't have much left that they can do all they can really do is throw the secondary game mechanics at it just like a fitbit all they can really do is give you the social aspects of it they can give you scoring badging right but the play the actual compelling nature of what makes games work and what makes the brain function at a highly uh, evolved and, and efficient level is our engagement with the play. This is the magic, and we, they're not allowed to make the magic, nor was there any respect for the fact that there was magic or that the magic-making process had to occur. So what I'd argue today is most gamified or games that are therapy, they're not games at all. No, no. Now, but this is uh, kind of a clash of clans to, uh, to, put, <laughs> to put a game uh, title in, the, in, the, in it. Now, we have, of course, we have the clan of, let's say, the therapist and the, and the scientist who do traditional medical uh, studies. And they say, hey, we have this intervention and then we're going to test it and we see if there's anything. Uh, and, and let's say they don't think too much about the delivery process of the intervention. They don't think too much about the... Uh, the 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 form or the way or the, the the shape of that intervention they they have let's say the theory that um, um, uh, sorry about the background noise uh, the, the theory about we're going to have very clean uh, streets uh, and yeah that guy was very sure, happy sure. that, that was very happy <laughs> all right um, uh, no but uh, so uh, they have it. The, the hardcore scientists they say okay we want evidence uh, we uh, we want that a certain therapy is working. And, and on the other hand, the other clan, we have, let's say, the game designers who are very successful in, in uh, bringing a game to the market and attracting a lot of people uh, to it and, and have gameplay. The and, best and, are. And, 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 yeah, that's and, very true. And it's, uh, and it's, it's uh, well, it's, it's great and also a little bit frightening to see how big this industry has become and how mighty it has yes. become. And uh, how, how powerful games really are. Yeah. And how much... Um, regulations going to need to find that because yeah. there is um there is all sorts of uh impact that gaming and gaming in itself i, I mean I, I have a lot of um ideas about social media mm -hmm. and i think people don't understand how much social is ingrained in gaming and therefore though i think the play aspect is is harmless on any level mm -hmm. any game you can play and it's intrinsic nature of playing a game even a very violent game the data is bearing out without any question. Stanford just put out a great meta study showing 82 medical studies around, you know, gaming and shooting in games and all this sort of does not equate to potentially any sort of harm. However, if you build in a social component to your game, if you've got live and open chat, if you've got forums, now that's not a game. That's the secondary game mechanic. Uh -huh. And it has all sorts of opportunities for rhetoric yeah. and, and, and difficulty. Yeah, so yeah. And, and, but that's what we see in, let's say, in Telegram or other social media platforms. That's right. That, I mean, that we're, you, we're going to need that level of regulation. But kind of pulling back to what you were talking about is, you know, yes, I think you had one of your presenters today. They, they were saying, look, uh, here's my therapies. This is how it works. We've built some games and they presented some things that to me didn't look like a game. And then they were asked questions about the aspect of the game. And, they, and she said, well, you know, I, I, I'm not that interested in the game. I'm interested in delivering the therapy. To me, that's like a surgeon saying to me, I'm not that interested in the scalpel. 
Uh-huh. I just want to do the surgery. Uh-huh. Well, how are you getting in there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so in this case, are you in there at all? Right. And this is where I think we really have to start asking ourselves something from and being careful with this hubris, with this academic arrogance. It's like, just because you know how a mechanism of action works, mm-hmm. right? You know how to get someone to drop their A1C level down. If they won't, then do you really know how to do it? Right? Probably not. That's Probably what I'm not. saying. Yeah. And if we make the patient, if we want to make patient-centric medicine make sense, we have to be fair and right with the patient. And if we're yeah. going to use guilting, right? And then do the worst version of guilting. Oh, look, now we made it a video game. Here, put this VR headset on. Now you really should want to do it. Well, if you made something boring or unattractive, you've actually made the therapy harder to do because yeah. now you're putting yeah. this scary headset on. No one can see. You can't see anybody. Everybody yeah. can see you. And you're sp- and you've got this nature, this very uh, natural or, or reaction to something that it's supposed to be very doable. No. When we say to someone, it's easy, just do it. And that's you just even, made it made a more expensive, unsuccessful approach. That's what you. That's the only thing you did. Yeah. Demotivational. Yeah. You've lost that uh-huh. that individual, and, and that's where I I think we see this this clash of of the yeah. clans. You know, yeah. and we would never let it go the other way. Can you imagine if we let a group of game designers and they decided they were going to build surgical trainers? Mm-hmm. We're going to make surgical training games. Great. Where's your surgeons? Well, we grabbed this first year medical student. <laughs> What? Yeah. Well, no, no, no. You need a whole team of specialists. Yes, that's true. And uh-huh. so too you. So no, do but you maybe need that maybe uh, maybe it's fair to say that, let's say, game designers haven't ha- haven't have the, this social status yet. Uh, it will come. No, well, uh, for sure, I mean, they for sure. they definitely have not gotten the respect that they're due. Yes. On top of that, they have been vilified. Yeah. So many, sure. you know, gaming has been uh, since you know the '80s, starting in Germany. There was this whole idea of the blacklist of games, and that these games were going to make you apathetic to hurting other people and all this kind of stuff. We pulled back, and I went as far because if I was yes. going to do this, yeah. I needed to look at it. Yeah. Those studies came from places that were motivated by control, sure. right, and funded by folks that were not really looking to see whether or not the mm-hmm. game was good for you. And then we've seen this go on and on again with the gun lobbies and all this sort of thing where, where the yeah. idea is that we were moving the uh, blame, you know, yeah. shifting the blame. But but some people say, okay, why don't we approach games as a language? If we if a game is a language and a language we all, uh, we all know how to do because every child learns how to play, it's the first thing they probably do. And this playfulness and and, and playing uh, playing around, that's basically how we uh, how we we go through the uh, through this world. If we put that mechanism, which we all know, the, the language we all speak is play. Uh, if we use that for 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 things that help us in our lives, it's very positive. But of course, there's a negative side which you could also I use like play for. I like this when we think about the power of play. Mm-hmm. We all know how to play. Uh-huh. Just like we all know how to sing. Yeah. But can you write a hit song? Probably not. <laughs> Same thing with the games. So yes, the play is powerful, but what you need to understand no, is... No, but we all, we all uh, are open for the concept of play. We're all open for the concept of play. So and we, and so the studies we are, are very much showing us yeah. just how powerful that is. Yeah. But the making something fun, making something a game, mm-hmm. right, is and something that's universally applicable and, uh-huh. and stuff like that, that, that takes... Is, that's as, a profession. 
Like, as much as being a doctor, which yeah. that's the part that's yeah. throw, or is, a as baker much or, or as being any, a doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah, that's right. Or you know, but when you say baker, I'd say more like pastry chef. Yeah, right. Like someone who if, goes if deep and specializes. So is there, yeah. is there a pastry chef yeah. who, who builds great bonbons or whatever? What that's you? right. And, and, and which that, is really chemistry, right? And which is chemistry, and yeah, people come from right. all over. And and okay, okay, but then. Uh, what puzzles me is we have this brilliant scientist, young, ambitious scientist. They have brilliant ideas on how to deploy their therapies on, on their patients. They want to be successful, but they don't know anything about game design, game development, on how this thing is going. They don't have money to hire a, a top-notch game designer. As, um, but uh, let's say in, a, in, in essence, in the, in the way they approach the 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 project let's say people with shoulder pain they can benefit much from from mm -hmm. from play so how do we bring these worlds together how can we uh, not make a clash of clans but a but a, but a collision of clans or it's or, a, uh, or a collaboration of a clans. collaboration yeah. of i think clans. first of all it's, yeah. it's a reframing of you mm -hmm. so the first thing you just said something really important they don't have money i don't agree with you it's mm -hmm. three trillion dollars being spent on healthcare around the world mm -hmm. it's how we allocate the funds Yes, our what pressure. starts is with by prioritizing it. Yeah. If we can, if Pfizer can, you know, get enough money together to do all the things that they're yeah. doing in pharmaceutical, we certainly should be able to find a way to budget and otherwise. For sure, budget. for sure. So the the money is out there. What it starts with is this level of understanding, mm -hmm. right? And and that gets combined with the other thing that we need is you know if we go back to that Venn diagram, if you think about accessibility to care, that really is a combination of usability, which I mean, and and gaming, and um, and regulatory uh -huh. it has to be what we haven't been able to say about these games before is this one treats depression this one is really good for uh, low tone this one is really good for uh, anxiety uh -huh. so working through and this is what what i've been working with, with on Deepwell is though yes we're creating therapeutic games we're doing all that to make a point what we have on the back end is an engine that helps game designers design games the way that they intrinsically are used to building them uh -huh. and aligns that with a medical system that is used to software that is written once, verified and validated and mm -hmm. locked down in its entirety. So we're coming up with new ways to manage the regulatory burden. And that then leads us to the next part of the Venn diagram. When you manage that appropriately, cost construct and constructs get managed con considerably. So the FDA wants you to write software the way you would write it for a pacemaker. Mm -hmm. But they do allow for risk analysis and the understanding of which portions of the software are therapeutic versus decorative. You know, are set in the background. And so we've done a lot of work uh, showing the difference between the therapeutic mechanism of action, mm -hmm. managing that and what would be considered a ISO 62304, 1345 FDA, CFR 21 compliant environment, and doing that in a way that the, that the game designer doesn't have to know what any of those numbers and letters mean. They get to use Unreal Engine or, and live in the world and do the thing that they're doing by separating and teasing out the kernels of therapy from the rest of the therapeutic delivery mechanism, which is really, you know, very decorative. Yeah. So doing that is a cost, as a cost uh, control. And then the next part of that as well in that, in the, is to have therapy designers and build more folks that are doing what I'm doing, which is the interpretive dance between the doctors, the engineers, mm -hmm. and, and the game designer, bringing everybody to the table so they can bring the parts that matter. And that will land us at that last part, which will land at something that's compelling. Because compelling doesn't just mean that it's a good game either. If the good game leaves you at a place where you're no better than you were before, it's not compelling either. It's no. when we put all of this together, so, bake it in. 
Okay, so let's uh, let's leap in time another twenty years mm. uh, when you sold Deepwell. <laughs> what uh, what would you have uh, have accomplished when and, and you're standing on a tennis court and you're thinking and reflecting and say, okay, what have I achieved and, and what 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 do you wish to achieve? What's what do you want? What do you? What I would like to, I'd like to see in the next ten to twenty years that immersive medicine becomes a discipline mm. that you can take all the way to the PhD level. Mm-hmm. That the people that study this, they and they come out on various sides of it. You could be a PhD in immersive medicine who's more of the designer of therapies, and that mm-hmm. becomes more of a game design. Or you can be the one that's more of the creator and scientist, and and mm-hmm. they all come together in okay. a way that that we can build and utilize this okay. technology. So, let's say Stanford uh, has this study line where you can become an immersive medical designer practitioner. Yeah. Practitioner, yes. So then. Uh, But that's that's not. Do you do, does your company fund that? Uh, yeah, the company. I mean, I, I could I could care less where Deepwell is and all this. Honestly, okay. uh, I <laughs> I want Deepwell to to be enabling, but it's going to take. This is something that's going to take. There is no magic bullet game. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be any magic bullet company. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking to build the apple of medicine. No. Right. I'm looking to build enabling, and Mike is like this too, and the whole team is like this. We want to put enabling technologies, thoughts, and concepts. Mm-hmm. in the world in a way that people can make this go. So the FDA and, and you know in the EU here through the directives everybody understands the power of play. Games are properly regulated and appropriately utilized in motivational mm-hmm. techniques have been managed. They don't fall into the hands of social media to the point because all of this stuff also that can compel you to really change yourself neurologically mm-hmm. could get you thinking that all day long all you should do is buy x or do y and we want that to live mm-hmm. we want to properly understand this power of media mm-hmm. and have distributed it in a way that people that care to use it for medicine can mm-hmm. use it appropriately yeah. accurately and safely 